Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. I'll be hosting this episode. For more than 20 years, I've provided leadership and guidance in technology and software development. When I'm not networking, making connections, and trying to help out wherever I can, I follow my creative passions of graphic design and photography. Let's get right into my conversation with Jim Gibson. All right, everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm here with my special guest, Jim Gibson. Uh, Jim Gibson is an entrepreneur and an innovation strategist. He's a partner with Thin Air Labs. He's a published author, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, he's also a member of the A100, a former director of Startup Calgary and a former director of the Alberta Ballet. So Jim's been around. Um, so aside from some of these great accomplishments uh, and the fact, a very important fact that you're uh, one of the co-founders of the Rainforest uh Reinforce Alberta itself. Um, I'd like to kind of go back a little bit, rewind the clock a little bit and uh, talk about who is Jim Gibson? You know what? What I, I kind of want to know, you know, what were you like as a kid? Were you the quiet little guy in the corner that played with Lego or were you always acting out? Like, give me a little background on that. Thanks. Thanks, Helen. And thanks for having me. It's rare to get asked about the the, the backstory. One of the things that I like to tell people, and most people don't know this about me, is is I, I use the phrase, I'm a son of a banker. And uh, what that means in the old days, uh, in the bank, you were either up or out in two years, you know. And so I moved nine times as a kid. So born and raised in Montreal, moved to Toronto, moved to Vancouver, moved to Toronto, moved again and again. And, and so that... You know, that really defines who you are as a kid. And, and I think we had five kids in our family. And so, you know, when you were that new kid on the schoolyard six or seven or eight times in your life, you you go one of two ways, right? You, you become you become the person that just just disappears into the crowd or you make it happen, right? You just you make it happen. I, so I think I think while there were some traumatic moments as I left friends and you know, in, in those days, I think it defined me in a way that I'm only realizing now in my fifties, what, what it means to, to be able to cope with ambiguity and, and change. And so as a kid, I lived in all the major cities of Canada and, and, and I really think that that's added to my ability to understand what's happening in Canada and so forth. So kid, you know, normal kid, big family, lots going on, um, was very curious. I was the, I was the one that would come home at lunch and would have to tell my mom, you know, at least 20 minutes of stories because of what I learned and saw. So I was a, I was a gregarious and curious kid. One of the things that I do recall and I do mention as a, as a child growing up was, was books. I was surrounded. My mom was just, just an avid reader, father less so, but, but more typically my mom. So the house was filled with, with books. And, and so I do remember that. Um, and that was a big part of our upbringing. So fairly curious, but pretty typical teenage kid growing up in the 70s, both goods and bads and uglies that, that you can imagine, especially Montreal, Toronto. That was a lot of fun. But um, one of the other things that I like to say about my history is is my my father was had sort of said, yeah, you're the one that's going to follow me in the in the banking industry. And my oldest brother tried that and, and didn't quite succeed. But I ended up doing my BCom and my MBA 
And so that I was tracking to be that kind of finance and banking guy. And I really looked up to my father. And I got bit and hit by the entrepreneurial bug when I was about 26 oh, by man. a couple of amazing guys who, long story short, I ended up starting my first company at 26 and left my full-time job, had twins. It was, it was insanity. If I look back on it many years later, it was, it was crazy. So, um, so, but the interesting thing is, and, and this is kind of the, the epilogue or the punchline to, to the story of my dad was he always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but with five kids and, a, you know, bills to pay, he just, he couldn't do it. But he was actually one of those old time entrepreneurial bankers. He really understood that um, the risk return scenario of an entrepreneur. He was much more interested in the team. He got to know the team. He got to know what's going on. And at the time, the banking systems were flexible enough where you could kind of take those chances as, as a young account manager with the Bank of Montreal. And he always looked at what I was doing and, and uh, loved. We used to sh sit and share stories over a beer and, and talk about the work that I was doing and the companies I was building. So he kind of lived vicariously a bit through, through me. So anyways, that's a long answer to, to um, the story of Jim. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. With, uh, I'd like to carry that next into, I know a lot of the listeners really, really enjoy hearing about how got someone got to where they are in, in their current life. So you had mentioned in your late 20s there that you had started your first company. Could you maybe walk us through maybe high level how that went, like from from this to that to this to that? Yeah, it was, it was a really good story. I mean, the one thing I do say is that I did have, you know, I finished my degree. I went back, to, did my did my MBA. So, I mean, those are the things you put in your back sack that nobody can take away. So, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of being an entrepreneur. But, you know, contingency plans that education brings is, is pretty cool. But at 26, uh, I was, I, I had done my undergrad in commerce and with a minor in computer science. So, as a real nerd, mm. I really loved computers and, and so forth. So I was really quite active in, in, in computing. And when I met these guys who were coming, they'd come out of the big seven, which is now the big four, KPMG, et cetera. But they had come out of the big uh, two of the big seven firms and they were tired of being accountants and management consultants. And they wanted to start a strategy firm around technology. Mm -hmm. This was back in the, in the, in the mid eighties, late eighties. And so I was the kind of the tech guy. <laughs> didn't have a degree in tech, didn't. And so we built a strategy, a technology firm back at that time. And we just, you know, it was one of those things where you ate what you killed and, and you did your best and it was a services company. Um, and we grew that just, we caught the right time, right moment. Um, strategy and tech was really important around then. And we grew it to about 30 people, 40 people, 30, I forget how many at the, at the time, but we were a pure services management consulting mm -hmm. firm. And one of our clients, about uh, six years into our, our company, one of our clients came to us, a very large insurance company. We were in the healthcare space, um, basically said, buy that company in Calgary, um, who's one of our suppliers of our backend adjudication claim software. We went, what? No, we're a management consulting firm. And they said, no, I'll tell you what, we'll... If you buy it, we'll guarantee you a contract for 18 months and basically paid for the acquisition. Oh, wow. And so we, you know, being business people, we went and said, that's a no brainer. And so we ended up buying a health claims adjudication software vendor. And we knew a lot about the strategy around that, but now we were a product company. And so the, one of the lessons of that was the incompatibility between a service business model and a product business model. And it was tough first couple of years, but long, you know, the good news is after about 10 years, we were about 80 people. We ended up going looking for financing, raised a couple of rounds. And on our third round of financing, um, 
actually worked with the Bank of Montreal, but un, unrelated to my father, um, we ended up getting acquired by a company out of Asia mm. who had been doing claims processing and doing a lot of that um, and wanted to come to Canada. And oh. so we got acquired. And so the funny story I tell is that here I was, you know, a kid. I still felt like a kid, but I'm over in Shanghai because they, they had made me international marketing director or something like that when I signed on to the new firm. My golden handcuffs. Anyways. What was your, uh, usually there's a term with that, like you must stay for three One year years. and one second. Oh, <laughs> so interesting. It was a year handcuff. And I'll, but I'll never forget being in Shanghai doing this simultaneous translation of Mandarin and, 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 and English announcing our new product. And I just had this out-of-body experience going, what the heck am I doing here? <laughs> Anyways, long story, you know, a minute after the year was over, they were a public company. So we were able to exercise and we we diluted and off we went. And I, that was that history. So what happened next? Well, ne what happened next, I ended up, the, the firm was in Calgary. So uh, my wife at the time, we moved from Vancouver to Calgary. We ended up being in Calgary. Um, part of that big consolidation when CP Rail, um, she worked for CP Rail and uh, when Imperial Oil, that big consolidation in Calgary, they had office moves, which really transformed. We were part of that big uprise in Calgary at the time. It was great. So I ended up becoming a, um, uh, working for a couple of firms and then started a private equity firm in 2001 with a couple of partners for four or five years. And then for really the 2000s, um, ended up doing investing here directly in companies. I wanted to play the other side of the game, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I had been a uh, capital and entrepreneur acquirer, but uh, now I wanted to actually provide the capital. Okay. A lot of fun. A lot okay. of fun. Calgary in, in the 2000s were, were a lot of fun before. Um, and so I ended up uh, following my money in our money into one of our technology companies. I wanted to go back in in 2006, seven. And ended up going back in and creating a, a, a software collaboration company, very much like Slack, but unfortunately at the time, um, about about five years too early. So mm. super smart, but learned the second lesson of my life, which was which was timing is everything. Right. right? And and right. and the other thing is is if there's no customers to buy your product, you can be the smartest cat on the round. But right. if if they ain't buying, and just so that 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 ended up being where it was, and then. And then was involved with two companies as their COO. I was uh, with Chaotix and then Kudos. And then uh, left that to uh, write my write my book, start the rainforest, and here I am. So Where did uh, Thin Air Labs fit in? So Thin Air Labs has just started. So Thin okay. Air Labs really came out of the work that we and the people I had met at the rainforest. Okay. So Greg Hart, my, my one partner, one of the smartest design systems thinkers in, in most a lot of the People who are listening to this will know Greg, but he's he was a he is an extraordinary thinker of what's coming, and designing and and understanding how systems respond to change, and he's probably one of the best thought leaders in that space anywhere in the world. Um, so we rely on him to to really help us understand how to how to make change happen. Great guy. And then and then uh, as many of you know, James Lockery. So James who just recently exited from Wave, um, is now our capital partner. So the three of us are, the, are, the, are, the, are together. And what we're doing at Thin Air Labs is, is really looking at venture and investing and creating companies from an ecosystem perspective. So the traditional model of venture and, and um, su you know, su supporting firms is gonna, it's kind of a one-off model, right? You, you invest in a, in a series of companies to create a portfolio, and away you go. You may have a thesis around that. But 
like the Andreessen Horowitz model, we really believe that if you create entire ecosystems and surround companies with all the necessary things to make them successful, including culture, including other firms, including talent, all of those things, it's actually a better model for, for venture investing. So we call ourselves an ecosystem venture investor. And okay. so we want to create and are creating entire new ecosystems in Calgary. Interesting. And the first one that we just stood up in May, and we've been working on it for about six months now, almost eight months, six months, yeah, is Thin Air Games. So that's that's our venture into the gaming industry to create a whole ecosystem around gaming. For sure. Yeah. And we're hearing a lot of, uh, in the industry, we're hearing a lot of buzz about gaming. Yeah. And the, uh, is it the city that wants to make something happen there well and and i'd like to say the city cd especially is is reaching out to us to they want to they want to lock down some of their thinking on that so they're going to do a bit of a study on it but we're working really closely with them very cool say. and our my colleague you know keith warner who just came from denver with new world Inter interactive to create new world north is going to be the anchor tenant of of the thin air games strategy cool and uh he's uh he's one of a kind and so with the talent we have up in Edmonton with Aaron Flynn at Improbable and the folks at Sirius Labs and a number of that gaming, if you really take a broadest view of gaming, it, it underpins much of the technology that's coming for everything oh. from simulation to training to VR and, and ultimately, yeah. you know, VR yeah. and then obviously personal gaming right? yeah, so yeah, as well. Yeah. So we yeah. think that we want to stand up a, a, um, a gaming incubation uh, right on Stephen Avenue. We've already got 17 firms from across Canada and some from around the world who want to come to Calgary and we're going to fund that operation. Wow. So that's a model of how we think ecosystem investing is going to work. And that's the Air Labs is you. So yeah, super that's cool. Exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. That is yeah. really exciting. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people know, but some people don't know that the, the game, how big the gaming industry is. And I mean, they, they have like stadiums with big screen TVs in them and they watch people play video games. And there's, I forget the fella's name, but a young kid just won $3 million yeah. as a, was it a Fortnite champion or something? Yeah. And this was just very recently. Yeah. And, um, you know, all, all of us kids who used to sit around at home playing video games and our parents telling us we're never going to amount to anything. <laughs> That's not go. necessarily the go. truth anymore, is it? It's, 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 it's a, it's a wide reaching, uh, deep and, um, and to be, to be really frank, it's, a, it's an economic driver of many, many things. And our, our mission really is, you know, imagine a 20 year old, 22 year old may have partial success in university or whatever. There's, they're sitting there and going, uh, I tell great stories. I love technology. I love to imagine new simulations and new worlds. Imagine if we could surround them with the talent like a new world could bring to the table in story yeah. editing and design and video design. And, and imagine what we could do to a couple of 20, 20 somethings who go, wow, I could do that here in Calgary. That's exactly what we want to do. And Brilliant. I think that those kinds of jobs are super, super meaningful because not only do they, you know, if you're successful, you can, they're very lucrative, but they give you the skills, frankly, that can take you into all sorts of different things as you right. go forward. So that's our, that's our plan. That's brilliant. And the, the ecosystem idea is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, and if you get a chance, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the, my influencers is Andreessen Horowitz. So, so you know, um, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz who talk about, you know, the venture model, which picks winners and losers and, and allows 80% of the companies to fail is really the wrong model. It's an old model of, of, 
of extraction, right? I'm going to extract the best and leave the rest to die. Yeah. And that's the wrong model. And reason surrounds their companies with entire, the world's best expert, experts. And as Mark says in his podcast, which is great, he says, that requires us to reimagine compensation at the partner level at Andreessen Horowitz. He says, we don't make a whole whack of money um, by just sitting around investing in portfolio companies. We actually invest in the talent to support our entrepreneurs. Well, that's, that's another word for ecosystem design. So I think one of the most successful venture firms in the world today, I'll take a page out of them anytime. Right? Yeah, so that's, 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 how we're, that's how we're thinking about it. That's absolutely brilliant. Okay. Um, so... Switching gears a little bit, let's briefly talk about the founding of the rainforest because yeah. I think that's a, a really mm -hmm. interesting story. And then I want to talk a little bit about the tip of the spear and, and your your thoughts of the future of technology and how it's affecting us. So they're related. The stories are related. Okay. okay. And but so so the, the the sequencing is actually quite good. So but but the 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 rainforest and I think many people who have who've known me and, and have been involved with the rainforest movement, which of course you have Al, um, know this story. But for those who don't, I mean it really started three, three and a half years ago when Brad Zumwalt, um, the, the the spiritual Yoda of 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 the ecosystem and the rainforest basically bumped into Justin Reamer, who is the the director of innovation at uh, at uh, economic development and trade at the time, and he had said, you know, Brad, there, here's a book you got to read. This is called the Rainforest. And the Rainforest was written by Victor Wang and and uh, Greg Horowitz, and it described a framework for thinking about innovation that modeled around complex adaptive systems like rainforest. So instead of the production model of the farm, which we're all used to. They embrace this notion of wildness and, and the ecosystems of complex systems. And so it was a really meaty, thoughtful read. And I, Brad said, Gibson, read this. And, and I knew Brad fairly well, but, but not, you know, we were, we were colleagues. And then all of a sudden he goes, why don't we do this? I wrote him a note and said, why don't we just get the authors and let's get them, let's get them in. And he says, great, I'll write the check, disappears for the summer as he does. And he said, go fill it up. And so with the A100, Dave Edmonds and Cynthia Van Sundert, um, we filled the room with 65 people who we thought would be a representative sample. And we, I, in hindsight, we nailed it. Uh, we just, I mean, Dave just is awesome. He knows everybody and Cynthia knew everybody. So it was a bit of mine just, and we brought the authors up. We brought, well, their, their consulting group, but we brought them up. And in September, literally three years ago to this day, um, or plus or minus, we brought a bunch of people up to Banff. No, no cost. People were wondering what the heck, but uh, we cajoled them to come. And, and it was an amazing session that really just said, here is the framework that we want you to think about. And what do we think the gaps are in the framework vis-a-vis -vis Calgary? And so when you have academics, entrepreneurs, venture capital people, government, you have the whole milieu and some energy people. That's amazing. And mm -hmm. so we actually got it right. We wow. Like, and then well, the other thing we did right, and just as the, the story goes, people know this, is we just created a cadence. Uh, Evan Hugh basically said, why don't we uh, meet every Wednesday? And sure enough, we did. And 172 weeks later, we've met other than Christmas and so forth. We've met every single Wednesday called Lunch, lunch Without a Lunch with people are familiar with. And that just brings everybody together to have a conversation. And the last thing we did, which was really good, which we built the social contract, mm. which allowed us to say, we're not sure where this thing is going, but we sure know what we believe in. And we were able to point to a very simple, straightforward 10 bullet 
point thing that basically the stuff you teach your kids before they go to kindergarten, you know, this is the stuff that we believe is necessary for the culture of trust in the ecosystem. And that's right. And the rest is history. And right. we've met seven times in deep dives. There's another deep dive coming up in September, coming mm -hmm. up right now, mm -hmm. which I think I'll be facilitating part of that. Um, but yeah, so that's the rainforest. So I hear um, stories of companies adopting mm -hmm. the, the 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 rainforest, uh, you know, values and stuff like that. Well, how does that make you feel? That's really cool. Two two quick stories. I mean, one is a really good friend and somebody who I have a lot of respect for, Joey Romero, who's um, from CNRL um, in 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 digital and strategy there, but also more more germane is the chair of uh, of CRIN, the Clean Resources Innovation Network, and she came to the second uh, rainforest uh, se immersion session in 2017 and brought a bunch of her energy colleagues and just lit up. She just got it, and to this day, the CRIN, which is a collection of hundreds of firms in the energy industry has adopted a modified version of the rainforest. Very the other cool. story I tell is that as one of my colleagues in, in the UK and London um, loved the, the, the rainforest social contract and actually walked it into the head of sustainability at Barclays Bank. And I have a picture of the, the rainforest contract sitting in the, in the desk of this, this, this woman who was running sustainability at Barclays. Oh, it's just like, that's cool. That's pretty cool. So anyways, yeah, it's been really good. That's very, very cool. Um, okay. So, First of all, thank you. Thank you guys for creating the rainforest. Uh, I think that uh, if anyone who comes to Calgary now is blown away by what's going on here. And um, I know you couldn't make it to today's event at the Hunter Hub, but it was one of the most huge events that we've we've had, I think. You know why? They serve pizza. Well, yeah, they did. They did provide. No, it was lunch kidding. without lunch. No, but, with lunch, but it was. But. I saw. I saw the pictures, and I talked to a bunch of people. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was really, really packed, and a lot of great conversations. <clears throat> so that's awesome. Um, I think uh, you know we all owe you and Brad and everybody that was part of the beginning of this a, a very a, a huge thank you and pat on the back for getting this rolling because it has some serious staying power now, and it's really flying along. So Good. I'm very Good. proud to be a part of, and, of it. It, again, it's a community. It takes yeah. it takes a village, but but thank you. It's yeah. it was it was fun. Absolutely. Um, now, I think that uh, I really want to get into this uh, this book of yours, the tip <laughs> of the spear. Um, first of all, maybe briefly just tell us how it came out. So officially, the title is "Tip of the Spear: Our Species and Technology at a Crossroads." And I know that uh, when you when you talk about this, you start out. Um, and it, it's a little bit depressing. <laughs> it's a little bit dark at uh, when you when you look at what what's kind of happening without people really noticing. But you have a bit of a spin on that uh, to to keep it positive because you're a glass three quarters full kind of guy. Um, so why don't you take us take us off on this? Thank you. I, it's thank you for asking. It's it it on on reflection a year and a half later. It's been it's been a great journey. Uh, but I do tell the story, and I've, I've done a lot of speaking on the book around around Canada and actually in, in the U.S. as well. So it's been it's been really a great um, affirmation of the thesis of the book. But also, I've learned a lot talking about it. But I do tell the story in, in my talks about, and this is an absolute true story. I was coming back from London, um, from the U.K. Um, in one of my trips um, about four years, about three and a half years ago now, and. I had been working with KPMG Innovation over in, in London and I was and I passed a newsstand and there was the article cover story in the, the Economist magazine. And it was it was the cover story on AI. 
And I had just started to work really closely with some, some of the AI companies, one of them in Montreal. And so I picked it up. I said, wow, of course. And it was a really good article. It was really digging finally into the kind of the pros and cons and what was going on, what was, what was the positive and the negatives. So it was a good, well-written article. And I, and I flipped the page, no word of a lie. And it was in the center of The Economist. It was their first take on Donald Trump. And, and so this actually may have been four. No, it was three and a half years ago. First take on Donald Trump from a real hard analysis. It was a two-pager, basically without getting into all the details. It used a phrase that just blew me away. It was They used a phrase called the future disenfranchised. Mm. And so here I was reading that article, and then I flipped the page, and then I see these words, the future disenfranchised. And it really put Trump in context. And and I have, you know, without getting into the politics, it's just, he represents, you know, a, a certain class people. And I swear, I expected to turn the page and see an editorial saying these two things are connected. And nobody did. It was mm. a story on Pakistan or something. And, and I went, it was at that moment on the flight back, I wrote the outline to the book. I said, Something's, some, we're not having these conversations. We're not talking about the power of the possible and the realities of who it's leaving behind. And so I set about, I had some time. I had just, I had quite a f- bit of freedom and my wife, Cynthia, went, uh, go for it. And so I did. And I started to do some deep, deep re- research and writing. And and I, I, I do t- I also tell the story is it's dark, right? At the beginning, when you start down the rabbit hole of the power of technology and inequality and, and those kinds of things, what really struck me, Al, was that the even, even the people I hung around with in the tech field were really not fully aware of the implications of what was coming, the, mm-hmm. just the incredible speed. And the implications of it, and so that first section of the book was 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 a, what, what I call constructive fear, right? It was setting the reader up to go, and my bottom line was pay attention because mm-hmm. we're not. And so I boiled it down into the three laws of disruption, which was the slope is changing. It just and 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 using examples and just reminding people, and everyone gets a little seduced that oh, we're always changing and. Things are always fast. And I just lay it out hard and go, it's really changing yeah. on so many fronts. It's combining, it's social, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the first law. The slope yeah. is – but the second and the third law are where it gets a little dark was this idea that against that backdrop of exponential change was the idea that the genies of technology never go back in the bottle. And nobody had – like I've heard that expression, but nobody is actually really – I see it a lot more now. But at the time I was writing, not a lot of people – we're using that expression. Mm-hmm. And as you think about AI, you think about gene editing, you think about all the technologies. And I use the example in the book about nuclear weapons, right? You know, 74 years later, after the end of the Second World War, we still can't put a single technology back in the bottle. Right. We can't. We yeah. never have. Yeah. You know, fire warmed our home, but it also burned down things and, and all of those things. So the genie gets, so technology is changing, genie gets, uh, and that's worrisome. But then the, the real policy reaction I had was that all the systems that are trying to cope with this are linear. So in the face of exponential change, you have – and it's not their fault. They're just linear. Yeah. They just move at a pace. Four years to get a degree, four years to change the electorate, electorate um, you know, 25-year uh, spreadsheets on, on Suncor up in the oil sands. You know, the, the, those timescales just don't lend themselves well. And so the structures that have kept us whole – are not able to cope with those first two laws. And so, yeah, it's a bit dark at the beginning, <laughs> beginning but I, I needed to, I, and, and, and so 
the book then shifts into a, a fictional story about two girls, two 13-year-olds. And I just said, okay, in the backdrop against these laws, let's imagine two 13-year-olds, one from Canada, who actually was uh, – uh, made up on 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 ethnographic research on my thirteen year old at the time, so <laughs> she's asking for royalties. It's really funny. <laughs> and it was her. It was a caricature. It was a, but her and then somebody from Malawi. So I did a lot of deep research and talked to lots of people who had been to East Africa and Central Africa and then talked about what's happening in that part of the world and what what's their lives. What are their lives going to be like over the next ten years? Mm-hmm. And so that's a fictional account. So it gets the reader out of, oh my yeah, god, yeah. this is dark. And then the last bit, and this is where it connects back to the rainforest, I go, okay, so what? What do we do about all this? And I hint that it's in the designing and redesigning of new social contracts that there that in lies our answers. Things are broken, mm-hmm. not, not because we're evil, but they're just, they're broken. Yeah. And so when things break, you have to step back to the ground zero and say, what is it that we believe in as voters, as mothers, as fathers, parents, teachers, politicians, professionals, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wrote a series of social contracts that says, maybe this is the way you need to think about that. So that was, that was kind of the, the way the book shaped out. So interesting. Yeah. So, um, that was a long answer. Yeah, no, that's great. But obviously you've, uh, you've talked about the book a lot. You've been on other shows, you've, you're getting more media attention and, and people can obviously read the book. So let's, let's move a little bit away from that and let's talk about, um, going forward, I'd love to hear, um, you know, you're an innovation strategist, right? So what, what are your thoughts about the, the future as, as, you know, everything that you've said in the book, um, as sort of like a background now and going forward, how do you think it's going to play out? Um, the million, 10 million, hundred million dollar question, right? It's, 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 it's one I've been asked and others have been asked. And, and so let me, let me, let me try it this way. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play some jazz for you, Al, <laughs> rather than have a, a score. But reflecting back on the social contract and, and that kind of thing, I think that I wrote a blog post that's gonna actually may feed the second book just recently, and it's and it was called "This Is a Test," and and the basic essence of the blog post was, you know what, maybe this conversational fractiousness that we have, the way our society is struggling to have sane and, and, and rational conversations about just about anything these days is actually just a test. Mm. Because I argue that if we can't have discussions about you know, our current de- democracies and the oil sands and, and that, imagine us trying to have conversations about the future of AI, mm. the future of genetic change, climate change, um, population control, migration, some of the most existential challenges in the world. So part of where I, where I boil it back down to is that the exponential curve genies out of the bottle are all going to keep coming at us in faster and faster. That's just yeah. as human nature as engineer. And on the one hand, it's going to create a world of abundance and a world of opportunity and so forth. But I liken it back to what I see at the rainforest every Wednesday. I, honestly, I watch the way we're redefining one-on-one, one-on-two, two-on-two, and 37 or 100-to-one conversations. Yeah. Like we're, we're, we're learning that we have to find the best of who we are as, as humans and also find a better way to communicate. So without getting too touchy-feely and kumbaya on that, but it means a lot to me to say, 
we have to learn how to absorb and create conversations that speak to and solutions, not or. Right. And and solutions are really hard when we because we have to carry two things in our brain at the same time. And so the answer to your question lies, I think, in reshaping at an individual, small collective, large collective basis how we fix fix our conversational capabilities and style. I, I say in the book, I say, just as we've wired up the planet with the gifts of the gods, literally, mm-hmm. more information than we've ever, we've forgotten how to communicate. Yes. So I, I, I think that until we figure that one out, this is a test. Um, we got to figure that one out. And, and what does that take? You know, mm-hmm. So bringing that right down the room, mm-hmm. it really, really, really requires at, at all levels, in your home, in your workplace, and our political leaders to just stand out right. and just be empathetic about other. And so, yeah, the other side, people will you know, go, no, that's just the way the game is played. And pardon the pun, that's just BS. Yeah. That's not the way yeah. the game is played right. if we're going to try and solve something. So without being preachy, it starts to absorb this amount of change, to create the, the ability to reshape our institutions, which have been with us for hundreds of years. We better start figuring out how to have human one-on-one conversations. Yeah. I don't know if that no, helps, it makes, but it's perfect. And that's um, the theme of, I think, what my second book is going to be about. That's that. perfect. Yeah, as, a, as you were talking, I had this visual Im- image play out in my head of technology being this giant boulder, you know, screaming along down a hill, crushing towns and, and causing destruction along the way, and people eventually coming in behind and coming in, helping people rebuild and become in some way able to deal with that boulder that went by and take what's good about it and let go of what's bad about it and sort of kind of fix things along the way because technology is not going to stop that ex- that exponential curve is not going to start flattening out again ever like it's it's just going to get steeper and steeper and ultimately with that happening somehow along the back end human nature still has to come out and people generally as a whole overarching have a, a feeling of of humanity and wanting things to be better so you th- you see things like for example there's big trends in business right now where businesses are having more of a they're looking more at a social impact not just how can they make a dollar but how can they make 75 cents and then contribute somehow to make the world a better place and it's actually society is actually now expecting that and maybe we can blame or thank the millennials for it. But ultimately, people are now saying, I would rather buy something local or I'd rather buy something ethically produced or I'd rather buy something that's not killing an animal or whatever, you know, personal thoughts are. That I think is is a really interesting thing because technology just keeps changing. You know, now we have meat that's not really meat. And all of a sudden, every single restaurant is serving this meat that's not meat anymore. And I mean, that just happened very recently. Yep. So it's it's very interesting how that giant boulder just keeps on rolling, but we can't stop the boulder and focusing energy on, you know, stopping technology or, or trying to get people to build technology in an ethical way or whatever is, it's just not going to happen. And so very similar to uh, software, 
you develop software and you go, look at this great thing, look what it does. And then some hacker comes along and causes trouble with it. And then a bunch of other people come by and fix all the holes and then it becomes a better product. And that's just the way it is. The boulder keeps rolling. People just keep coming in behind and fixing and, and helping move things forward. Yeah, I know. Well said, Al. And, and I think one of the ways I, I captured that thought, I think I do anyways, I do my best, is this expression that I use in the book and, and often in my talks, which is, I, I have had feedback on this, is this, this concept of innovation of ways versus innovation of things, right? Is innovation of things is what we know as technology, that boulder running down the hill. To, but what we have to be much better at and, and exponential about is innovation of ways, the way we design our, our corporations, how we think about what does extraction from the economy versus regeneration? What are those kinds of languages? Those are innovation of ways. Those are concepts that, and we need the same intellectual capacity. And this is why uh, applied to those problems as, as, uh, as, as, as others. And this is why I say to my colleagues, and I said this the other night in a speech, was we have to stop you know, with our, especially with our public officials who either elected or in the bureaucracy, we have to stop yelling at them. I mean, yeah, we, everybody has challenges and, but our job in the technology field and the field of innovation, we have to help them because I would argue, you imagine trying to build net new regulations on some of the technologies that are coming at us. Oh, yeah. It's the hardest. And we're the first ones as the populace to go, well, you got that wrong. Yeah. So, I really, so the innovation of ways principle, I, I, I really apply that to public policy, right? How we think about how we want ourselves to be governed and how we support the real challenges that some of our policymakers have to make. Mm -hmm. It help. Um, mm -hmm. So this notion of us and them, and, you know, and that's, just, that's just an old, old, old extractive model. I win, you lose. And I really am encouraging my colleagues, and I do a lot of this in terms of talking with public officials and so forth. I'm really encouraging them to call out, ask for help. Yeah. And it's been good. Anyways. No, that's very, very good. What do you think when you, you had touched a bit on AI and, you know, a lot of people are, are feeling threatened by that concept. Which, which side of the fence are you on? Are you thinking that, you know, the Terminator is, is coming or do you think that, uh, you know, it's just, it's just like, it's just not even in the realm of reality? So I hear at one of the big upcoming conferences, Jack Ma from Alibaba is formerly uh, is going to debate Elon Musk. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a ticket I would buy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, to see that because that represents the two camps uh, very much. So personally, um, I'm, a, I'm a believer I really am. And I've thought about this a lot because I wrote this in the book again, and I, I researched this quite a bit to form my own opinion was Nick Bostrom in the, in his book, super, super intelligence has a quote about half, halfway through that says AI is the last invention of mankind. Right. And you pause on that thought yeah. and you go, okay, all right. If we get it right and we start the algorithms in the right way, we will have all of the software smarts, and the algorithms in machine learning to learn about what's happening next. And if we start it properly with the right ethical framework, all good. I think if we start it wrong, I think if we turn that flywheel, as, as we like to say, that you know, get the flywheel turning, we start that wrong. The genie's out of the bottle law of my life it says, Matt, it, it's not good. And so coming back to my earlier point about having conversations, that's why these conversations are so important because we actually 
Don't know. But my bet is that if we get it right, we'll start to see some of the power. We have to have the innovation of ways conversations to figure out what happens when we have the inevitable job displacements that happens that will happen from automation caused by AI. But we have to have those conversations mm-hmm. at, at a policy level. Mm-hmm. But we got to do it now. So I'm I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting less patient, put it that way, in a positive way, right? I'm getting less patient with, with the idea that, oh, well, we'll just figure it out. Mm-hmm. We can't even figure out, you know, the basic conversations about Donald Trump and the right and the conservatives and that. We can't even have civil conversations on that. So I get a bit grumpy on, that's the one area where I go, okay, no, 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 no. This is an important conversation. The yeah. rest of that stuff is just noise. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's a very personal opinion. So pardon me for, for sharing that, but that's, that's, I feel very strongly. Yeah. yeah. You gotta have those conversations. Yeah. So I can't wait to hear what Jack, Jack Ma and Elon Musk, they should sell tickets to that thing. Seriously. Yeah. It should be a yeah. worldwide, because you may not believe either side, but holy. Let's get the debate But it going. starts you thinking, right? It starts people you know, thinking and talking. People go, oh, it's just going to kill jobs. Well, every technology ever invented by man has has, has wiped out jobs. But we're an ingenious species. We That's what we are. Yeah. yeah. But uh, tip of the spear. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What I'd like to do is just say, first of all, I think like we covered a lot. It's It's been a really, really exciting conversation. I appreciate you, you, you coming in and I'm talking delighted. to I me. Really am. Um, but is there anything else that you would like to leave with the, the readers with before we uh, end this podcast? Um, many, but <laughs> let, let me let me just, let me talk about this province for a second. Okay. Because I think we're at, we're at, we really are at a watershed moment in the province, and and all. And this isn't a political discussion. This is just about where I see things, and and for well, I'm just one small person in the, in the mix. But I really believe a couple of things about Alberta. First of all, I I think that um, we have all of the raw material and the right ingredients to be a world leader in the in the very things that are going to fundamentally change in the next 10 to 15 years. Energy, water, food, health, all of that is actually well so well represented in this province, both by expertise, by experience. We know how to build stuff. Mm-hmm. We really do. Mm-hmm. We have more data exhaust and data capabilities in this province because of the energy uh, conversation and work that we've done over decades. And so... What what my appeal and my my thing I want to leave people with is a on the positive this province has everything going for it absolutely plus by the way more capital and private high hands than anywhere in the in North America on a per capita basis so it's all the ingredients there let's go back to my earlier point let's stop having finger pointing conversations and let's start working together to to light this up. Um, I think it's the it's a once for people who are looking for opportunities. It's a once in a generational opportunity to shift shift a, a province in a place that is just teeming with opportunities. I, I really so I'm a super big optimist. However, <laughs> we have to be patient, and we we have to have some urgency. But we have to be patient in terms of recognizing that there's no there's no silver bullet. There's not going to be a single company or some. We have to invest like we've been doing for three and a half years in the rainforest in the culture of trust. We have to invest in those kinds of things. Right. So we have to remind ourselves that it's all here, and we just have to learn to have 
good conversations, respect for each other's ideas, and recognition that this province has has a lot, you know, everything going, not just a lot, but everything going for it. So yeah. I'm super bullish, but also I, you know, want to make sure that we uh, pay attention. Well, I think anything that's, you know, happened in the world that's been of major value and major accomplishment has been done as a team, right? Like more, more, the more people that come together around the same idea, you know, the better success rate it'll, it'll have. And with organizations, with uh, movements like the rainforest, when I go to the meetings, I see people absolutely ready to just jump in and help and and work together with people. Well, and, and, I'll, and I'll, you know, I'll shout out to you. I mean, we're all like people say, who's leading the rainforest? Well, I, I say Al's leading the rainforest in the part. No, seriously. In, in the, you went, wait a second. There's a story problem here. We're not telling our stories. What does Al do? He puts up his hand and says, I'm going to do it. And he just does it. We're sitting in a room with very simple technology, but perfect. And you just went, I'm going to do it. And every week you stood up there and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And that's what lead, we, we're, we always look for kind of the someone on the, on the horse to come in. And you know what? It's leadership at, around your dining room table. It's leadership around your company. It's leadership like you did. Um, and it's leadership at the political level. We confuse that, that there's some sort of hierarchy of leadership. There's not. There's leadership everywhere. And that's yeah. what, that's our mission, as you know, in the rainforest, right? Absolutely. We're yeah. all leaders, right? Yeah. So step up wherever you can to say, yeah, that's the hill I'm going to take. And, yeah. you know, there you go. So I like that. There you I go. Like if yeah. you're listening to this episode and you have an idea to change the world, then the best thing to do is get off your butt and do, do something about it instead of just talking about it. And there's a community in the, certainly in the rainforest and others, but who will be delighted to go, yeah, what's, what do we ask people? You know, the very thing we ask people when they show up at lunch without a lunch, what do you need? Yeah. And, and we say that with absolute sincerity and conviction. What, what, what do you need? Yeah. And people have to learn to answer that question right? yeah. and yeah. not be afraid to say, yeah, this is what I need. And that's cool. So there you go. Perfect. That's uh, that's exactly where I want to end it. <laughs> Good. Thank you, Jim, for being here. You're that was welcome. really fantastic. And uh, I look forward to uh, hanging out at the Rainforest with you. Good. We'll see you on the Wednesdays. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Al. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-source, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social-barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was sponsored by Workhouse, bright and inspiring co-working spaces that fuel productivity and cultivate creativity. The way you were meant to work. Make Workhouse Core the new home for your business. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.